This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, Trump keeps talking about war with North Korea, but we are often told his three top generals are working hard to control his actions and limit the damage he could do in Korea and everywhere else. John Nichols will comment all three of the generals on Trump's staff are featured in his new book, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America. And for something completely different, we'll talk about the Attica prison uprising of 1971 and its legacy. The true story of what happened there was covered up by officials for decades, but 47 years later, we finally know the true story, thanks to Heather Ann Thompson. Her award-winning book about Attica is out now in paperback. It's called Blood in the Water. But first, Trump and the Triumph of Fear Trump Watch starts right now. Now it's time to talk about Donald Trump and the triumph of fear in American politics. For that, we turn to Sasha Abramsky. He's a freelance journalist, a lecturer at the University of California, and a regular contributor to The Nation. He's written eight books. The most recent, just published by Nation Books, is Jumping at Shadows, The Triumph of Fear and the End of the American Dream. He'll be speaking Thursday night, October 5th in Los Angeles at Book Soup on Sunset Boulevard. It'll be at 7 p.m. Book Soup 8818 Sunset Boulevard in West Hollywood. Sasha, welcome back. Thanks for having me back on. Well, you open your new piece for the nation by talking about Trump's comments following a big terrorist bomb attack at the Brussels airport back in March 2016 when he was running in the Republican primaries. What did Trump say and what didn't he say? Well, what he didn't say was a straightforward issuance of condolence. He didn't make a statement about how sorry he felt and how sorry the American people felt for the victims of this attack, which would have been the immediate humane reaction. Instead, he immediately went on this tirade about what he called the torture, that if we'd had the torture, we would have been able to interdict these suspects, we would have been able to get them to talk about attacks before they unfolded. And he sort of almost reveled in embracing the implementation of a kind of state violence that democratic states for centuries have shied away from, from the Enlightenment period, the torture has been a taboo. Now, governments do it sometimes. They usually do it in secret because they're deeply embarrassed by it. But the idea of a major international figure asking the international community to publicly embrace forms of physical torture that have been banished by democracies for decades and centuries, that really took us in a new direction. And I remember that although uh, we did torture people during the George W. Bush presidency. He never called it torture. He called it enhanced interrogation. That's right. And the fact that he had a resort to euphemism and the fact that his Justice Department went out of their way to craft these legal justifications that said it wasn't torture. Well, on one level, it didn't make it any better. I mean, if you were somebody at Abu Ghraib or at Guantanamo or at one of the CIA black sites, and you were being tortured, you were being waterboarded, you were being put in coffin-sized boxes for prolonged periods, you were being hung by your arms, all these ghastly things that we've read about or should have read about in Senate reports and in media accounts over the last decade. Well, if you were one of the victims 
it didn't really matter whether it was called the torture or whether it was called enhanced interrogation. It was wrong. It was morally, morally wrong. But the very fact that the Bush administration was embarrassed enough by what they were doing that they looked to euphemism at least spoke to the fact that they realized that there was something grubby about it, something really awful about it, that they were skirting moral boundaries. What Trump's doing as he talks about normalizing torture, as he talks in public about collective punishment of terrorism suspects and their families, every time he does that, he's inviting the American public to join him in the grubbiness. And one of the things that fascinated me in the election campaign, and one of the reasons why early on I started writing that Trump had at least some similarities temperamentally with earlier generations of fascist leaders, one of the things that fascism has always been very good at is making the institutions of state and making the individuals within that state morally complicit in its crimes. And when Trump talks openly about a torture regime, he's inviting everybody into the torture chamber. And that, to me, can only be possible in an era of extraordinary fear, that in normal periods in history, the American public wouldn't want to be invited into the torture chamber with their leaders. The fact that Trump has realized that millions, maybe tens of millions of Americans are very happy being invited down that dark pathway. That, to me, bespeaks to the moment of what kind of fear-based culture, what kind of fear-based politics we're now living through. Torture is what Trump says we should do to our enemies. But, of course, the big question is, who exactly are our enemies? What is Trump's answer? Well, the problem is, when you unleash fear as a political currency... Anything and everyone becomes the enemy. So we have real enemies. There's no doubt that al-Qaeda or ISIS, for example, are bona fide, genuine enemies. On the other hand, if you then reach out and you say, the entire Muslim world, the entire Muslim religion is our enemy, as we're increasingly doing with our travel bans, our refugee bans, with the rhetoric around Islam and so on, well, then you've moved from a specific set of enemies to this very amorphous fear Um, If you say that all Mexicans who cross the border are our enemy, if you say that all young black men on the streets demonstrating against police violence are our enemy, well, eventually, all we're doing is flailing around at one enemy after another after another. And the thing that fascinated me as I was writing the book, this transcends politics. When you get into a moment where you assume the worst of everybody and you assume that if something bad can happen, it will happen, Well, that doesn't just impact your political choices. It also impacts your parenting style, whether or not you give your kids any kind of freedom, whether you let them roam around their neighborhood with friends. Um, It impacts what kind of educational choices you make, whether or not you're happy having a school that lets kids play outside or whether you want your school to be walled off. It impacts what medical choices you make. If you believe that vaccinations are some kind of vast conspiracy by the medical pharmaceutical complex, And so you don't vaccinate your children. Well, you're impacting your kids' health, but you're also impacting community health at a profound level. So I think the thing about fear is once it becomes the canvas on which we paint all of our stories, you rapidly get to a very, very dark cultural place. One of the most fascinating and original parts of your book, Jumping at Shadows, is your discussion of what you call friction zones, spaces where you say, opportunity and despair intermingle where our dreams collide with our nightmares. Please explain these friction zones. 
Well, I was trying to work out. There were these places I was reporting where things were happening that wouldn't happen in normal areas. So a case in point would be in those areas just north of the U.S.-Mexican border, in the desert south of Tucson, for example. You routinely hear stories of the Border Patrol finding these oftentimes dehydrated, very, very sick refugees who are wandering lost in the desert. or not Sorry, not refugees, immigrants wandering lost in the desert. And you hear stories of some of the violence that's inflicted on these immigrants once they're caught. And one of the stories you hear repeatedly is that the Border Patrol will catch immigrants and frequently push them face down into cactus spikes, yeah. which is deeply, deeply painful. If you've ever pricked your hand on a cactus spike, you know how much it hurts. Yeah. Well, imagine your face being pushed down into that. There's no reason to do that other than to inflict fear, to basically sort of impose a system of dominance. We're the boss here. We can do what we like. Now, if you had police going into a suburban area or an affluent gated community and inflicting that kind of torment on people, you'd have an outrage You'd have people up in arms saying this is just un-American, it's unacceptable. You'd have congressional hearings, etc. But if it happens in what I call these friction zones, these areas that divide affluence from poverty or that we see as being vital to our security in some other way, in those zones, we give law enforcement and we give other agents of authority a lot more power. So you see this on the border. You see it in poor, primarily black and brown neighborhoods where policing strategies are routinely more violent than they are in other parts of the country. You see it in airports where we have given away a tremendous amount of civil liberties to uniformed officers in the name of security. Now, you can argue whether or not that's needed, whether or not it's sensible, whether or not it's effective. But I think it's undeniable that in these friction zones, different emotions are colliding. So the airport is a case in point. It's a wonderful place in one way. It's our gateway, our portal to the world. It's the way we experience other cultures. It's the way we travel to far off places. But it's also deeply scary because we know that terrorists target airports. And it's that juxtaposition of optimism and pessimism, of hope and fear, of good dreams, bad dreams, that I think creates particularly weird dynamics. Of course, there are two bigger global fears, literally global fears, that, uh, that we face, nuclear war and climate change, global warming. How do those fit into your analysis? Well, I think one of the things that really interests me is how we calculate or miscalculate risk. And so when you ask Americans what they're most scared of, very few Americans say climate change. And actually, climate change is something very worthy of being fearful of, because if we don't get a handle on it soon, it's going to have just huge implications for how we live our lives all over the world. And we've started seeing these with these more and more powerful hurricanes. We're seeing it with droughts that are breaking harvests in many countries and so on. So in a rational world, we'd be much more scared of climate change than we actually are. And we channel energies towards dealing with it. Same thing with nuclear weapons. We are now in a more dangerous era in terms of nuclear weapons, their proliferation, their possible use than we've been in decades. And yet, until recently, until North Korea and the America-North Korea tensions grabbed the headlines, we really weren't thinking about it. It was a back burner issue. And so one of the fascinating bits of data I found when I was researching the book was when Americans prioritize fears, turns out that more Americans are scared of spiders and scared of gun control, not just guns, but gun control, 
than are scared of nuclear war. That doesn't make any sense. But it does speak to the fact that oftentimes how we prioritize risk and threat bears only the slimmest resemblance to what's genuinely risky, genuinely threatening. And then you see the consequences of that. Last week at the United Nations, Donald Trump gets up and in front of the world brazenly talks about the fact that if attacked by North Korea, America will, quote-unquote, totally destroy North Korea. Well, when you're using language like that, and you're the leader of the most powerful country on earth, it's absolutely clear that what he was saying was, if you push us, if you provoke us, we will drop nuclear bombs all over your country. He wasn't saying we will take out the leadership. He wasn't saying we will bring about regime change. He was saying we will totally destroy a nation of 25 million people. If that becomes the new norm, we've entered a sort of imperial age where America says, our way or the highway, and if you don't like it, we reserve the right to use the worst weapons on earth. There's a lot of very grim and horrifying stuff in your book, Jumping at Shadows, but there's also some fascinating antidotes to the toxic messages of the fear mongers and the demagogues. I was especially interested in a group you profiled in Tucson, Arizona, the Tucson Samaritans. What do they do? Well, coming back to what I was saying a minute ago about these immigrants who are brought over by coyotes into this incredibly inhospitable landscape. And this is an area where it can get up to 115, 120 degrees day on end in the summer. And there's very little water, and the mountains are extremely difficult to cross. And people routinely die out there. And you find bodies out there. You find the remains of bodies. It's a very, very dangerous environment. And so these groups, the Tucson Samaritans and some other groups, have essentially realized, look, these immigrants are coming over. And they're going to keep coming over because there are a lot of desperate people looking for economic opportunity or safety north of the border. And government policy at the moment serves mainly to push them further and further into the desert. So what the Samaritans and others do, they're not allowed to help the immigrants. They're not allowed to find them and help them track their way to safety in the north. That, that's a felony offense. But what some of them do do is they go out into the remote pathways in the desert and they leave water. So that at the very least, these immigrants, if they find the water, can drink something and maybe avoid a slow, painful death by dehydration. Um, and I think, you know, what fascinated me about the Samaritans was that they had worked out a way to think of the individuals they were dealing with, these migrants coming north, as real human beings with real human stories. And they were sort of transcending the politics. So the politics dehumanizes. The politics says, well, these guys are coming over illegally. They're bad people. They're trying to invade our country, et cetera, et cetera. The Tucson Samaritans say, look, they may or may not be coming illegally. We may or may not need to fix our immigration system, our border security, and so on. But do we really want individual human beings dying of dehydration in the desert in our own backyard? And they concluded that we didn't, that we're morally better if we try and work out a way to save these lives. And you can see these stories all over the country. It's not just people going off into the desert. You can see it in how local neighborhoods are trying to reimagine community. You can see it in how some crime victims, people I wrote about in my book, have managed somehow, despite the violence inflicted on them, to find forgiveness for the people who hurt them. 
Now, those stories, to me, I talk about the roads less traveled in my book. It seems to me that those are sort of moral pathways that provide a better alternative. They provide a better model of humanity. And one of the things that I hope, you know, when people read my book, partly you're right, it is a very depressing litany about bad things that have been unleashed in our culture. But it's not just depressing, because the upside is that there are these alternatives that people are thinking about and living their lives around. And those stories to me are fascinating, and they're uplifting. Sasha Abramsky, read him at thenation.com, where there's an excerpt from his new book, Jumping at Shadows, The Triumph of Fear and the End of the American Dream. Publishers Weekly, in a starred review, called it eloquent and devastating. Thank you, Sasha. You're very welcome. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump may be narcissistic, ignorant, impulsive, and dangerous, but we are told his top three generals are working hard to control his actions and limit the damage he could do. For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent, and all three generals are part of his new book, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, A Field Guide to the Most Dangerous People in America. John Nichols, welcome back. It's an honor to be with you. Well, the former generals, we are told, are keeping Trump from doing terrible things. They are his chief of staff, former Marine Corps General John Kelly, the Secretary of Defense, former Marine Corps General James Mattis, and his national security advisor, former Army Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. We're told that they have a pact among themselves designed to ensure that one of them is always in the country to watch over Trump in case he goes off the deep end. We're told they're setting limits and doing good things to prevent him from doing the worst. Your book tells us about each of them. You've studied them a lot. Tell us what you found and whether you welcome their ascendancy as much as some other critics of the president. Let's start with the most powerful, the new chief of staff, former Marine Corps General John Kelly. Who's he? Well, John Kelly is a is a person with a tremendous military record and and someone who an awfully lot of people in the military uh, have high regard for. And because people in the military have high regard for him, we have this interesting situation where people in the media and a lot of folks in Congress seem to have high regard and a lot of assumptions. The counsel I give is that he's often referred to as the adult in the room. Um, you know, but I think we should have sort of a higher standard than that, <laughs> okay. you know, because not all adults are perfect people and not all adults are right about things. And Excellent. having an adult in the room isn't necessarily the saving grace of any situation. And with Kelly, I have seen going back to his uh, – time at the Department of Homeland Security, an incredible willingness to facilitate Trump, to defend Trump. Uh, Famously, when the Muslim ban came down, he had clearly not been consulted adequately on it. And yet he stood up and says, well, it's on me. Anything that goes wrong, I I take blame. This is an absurd thing. And and he has defended some of the president's most absurd and irresponsible statements about former President Obama and other things. So I, I don't see Kelly as a particularly 
uh, moderating force, at least ideologically. He seems to be very sympathetic to Trump on a lot of what Trump's doing. And, and a final element here, if he is moderating Trump, if he's stabilizing things, then let me just remind you of a couple things that have happened since Kelly took over. Charlottesville and Trump's horrific response to it. The pardoning of Joe Arpaio. The uh, DACA order coming down now. Um, and it, some saber rattling as regards North Korea that has the entire world unsettled. If Trump is stabilized, um, a, yes, of course, I'd be horrified by what it would be if he wasn't. But I don't think John Kelly is doing any better, in my opinion, than Reince Priebus or, or Steve Bannon did when they were there. So I, I think it's way overplayed. And, you know, at some point what we have to recognize is that facilitating Donald Trump in many cases is as dangerous as, as what Donald Trump does. And what about the defense secretary, James Mattis? He doesn't like his nickname, Mad Dog. Yeah, who does? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like it, some of the nicknames you have, John, are very unsettling. <laughs> we can't say on radio. But look, he's called Mad Dog Mattis uh, because like McMaster – uh, the other general that we'll talk about in a moment. Um, he's somebody who developed a reputation while in the military as somebody, as a general who's very aggressive, as ready to, you know, if you're in a war situation, if you're in a combat situation, to really go for it, go all in. And as a result, Mattis is somebody who is a, a very passionate supporter of a great big Pentagon, more spending, expansion of what they do. It is true that he has at least a measure of respect for diplomacy and, and I think more than Trump does. But the fact of the matter is both Mattis and McMaster are people who prepare for maximum war and, and at a level that is just incredibly unsettling when you look at the budgeting issues, for instance. This administration is talking currently about moving tens of billions of dollars out of domestic programs and into the Pentagon. Uh, when Dwight Eisenhower, who's a hero of my book, um, when he talked about a military-industrial complex, uh, he was talking about where we're headed here, dialing mm -hmm. down the State Department, dialing up the Pentagon. Also, when Eisenhower started his presidency, he gave an incredible speech called the Cross of Iron Speech, 1953, in which he essentially said, you know, every time you build a destroyer, that's money that could go for schools. Every time you, know, you do a new weapon system, that's money that could go for uh, roads or bridges. And, and what Eisenhower was trying to say is if you tip the balance too far toward the generals, Eisenhower was saying this as a general, you end up causing tremendous problem at home. And I think this is happening as we speak. I think that Trump has high regard for Mattis, McMaster, and I think less so for Kelly, but it's there. The problem is that they are moving this country toward a situation where if we do end up in a war, the message will be go all in rather than, you know, there may be, still be a way to avert this. And the third of these uh, Trump's generals is the National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster. I learned from Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse that he has a Ph.D. in military history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a best-selling book in 1997 titled Dereliction of Duty, Johnson McNamara, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the Lies that Led to Vietnam. I learned from Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse that the New York Times called it comprehensive and balanced. That sounds great. Yeah, except 
um, the the analysis. I mean, the book was. I, I did look through the book and and talk to people who analyzed it and have a lot of reactions to it. The problem was that uh, the lesson that McMaster took away from Vietnam was not that we shouldn't have been there per se, or he might even accept that concept, but it is that once we were there, the generals and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, they should have asserted themselves more. Uh. They should have told the civilians, back off, you know, we're in this war, we got to win this thing. And, and his argument is that there was, you know, too much diplomacy, too much concern about civilian reaction. I see in McMaster and Mattis uh, and Kelly a disregard for the core concept of civilian control of the military. And one of the people I write a lot about in the book is uh, Kristen Gillibrand, the senator from New York. She did something that was, was different than most other senators. She voted against giving Mattis the waiver as a former general that allowed him, because you're not supposed to go from being a general so quickly to being in charge of the Department of Defense because it's supposed to be civilian run. Yeah. He voted against giving, she voted against giving the waiver because she said, you know, we are crossing a bridge here. We're crossing a boundary. And where we could end up is a situation where the generals really are calling too many of the shots. And I think, frankly, uh, that's something Donald Trump is inclined toward. And we need to spend a lot more time as a country, our Congress, our media, those of us who are talking right now, trying to figure out how we keep that balance of a civilian control over the military, and frankly, how we make sure that diplomacy, foreign aid, uh, alternatives to war, are as much a part of the discourse as this constant build out of the, of the Pentagon. So I worry about the generals a great deal. I worry that we have reached the moment that Eisenhower warned us about. Some of the things that Kelly is given credit for as one of the adults in the room is that he got rid of Steve Bannon and he got rid of Sebastian Gorka, who are some of the most dangerous people in America profiled in, in your book. And we're also told that General Kelly limits Trump's access to online right-wing news like Breitbart and uh, controls who gets to see him. And this is part of his achievement as the moderating, controlling, adult-like force. You know, in a lot of, in a lot of White Houses, it's an intern or a, a lower-level <laughs> person who puts together the, you know, puts together the clips, right? Yeah. Uh, this is the top-level responsibility <laughs> in the Trump White House is discerning what he, re, you know, what he gets his hands on. You know, this isn't new. Reagan, they, uh, some of the people in the Reagan administration tried to keep him from reading very right-wing publications because he would clip them and say, why aren't we doing this? <laughs> you know, apparently, Reagan actually kept like a little scissors with him always to clip articles. Now, we, now we're in the digital age. But here's the problem. Um, he, look, all these people that keep talking about this stuff are talking about, um, you know, kind of like mid-level organizational things in the White House. Donald Trump, as president of the United States, reacted to one of the most horrific events in recent times in this country. White nationalists, supremacists, neo-Nazis, fascists, supporters of the Confederacy marching on an American city and clearly destabilizing it, at least for a period, and then a violent incident in which a young woman is killed by one of these, apparently one of these people that came into the city. And Donald Trump took that, that incident and drove a wedge into America, suggested that, that people on, you know, people who are against racism and people who are for racism are somehow, you know, like on the, the you know, having this, this debate and you got to look at the bad on both sides and then suggesting very fine people are marching with neo-Nazis. If General Kelly has, has managed us to that circumstance, with all due respect, what is the point of General Kelly? 
And that's one of the arguments I make is uh, I refer to him as the secretary of Trump is always right. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, while he may try to limit information and inputs that are problematic to him, right? For Kelly, having Trump, you know, getting too much from Breitbart could be very problematic for how Kelly wants to do things. But at the core, Donald Trump is certainly uh, acting and speaking in ways that are as bad as they were before Kelly came in. So the cult of Kelly, in my opinion, is misplaced intellectually, practically, in almost any way you analyze it. Well, there are some commentators on the right who disagree with you about this. They regard the ascendancy of the three generals as what they call a coup being carried out by the famous deep state to stop Trump from doing what his followers elected him uh, to do. What do you make of this deep state coup talk? Um, look, I think that, that in the United States and Britain and other countries, there are, you know, there are sort of permanent interests that can be unsettling. And, and people on the left have often pointed out uh, yeah. that you have concerns about this. In England, it is a huge concern is that you, know, you get a, a labor government, a more left-wing government, and, and the bureaucracy seems to slow walk the changes that, that people have asked for. This is the stuff of history and of, uh, also of novels. Um, but here's the bottom line. As regards the Trump administration, Trump is not speaking for the great American, the great mass of Americans. 54% of people didn't want him as their president. He got 46% of the vote. He ran worse than Mitt Romney did in 2012. Polls show now that support for Donald Trump is down in the mid to low 30s and falling by all evidence. And so with all due respect, uh, Trump, what Trump wants to do for his base, right, is speaking up to a, t a small portion of the American people. It's not, you know, the will of the people. It's not the desire of where this country will go. And, um, and I think that instead of worrying so much about whether the generals or others are keeping Trump from doing horrible, scary things, what we ought to be worrying about is people who we don't hear much about at all. Um, what's Elaine Chow doing at transportation? What's Scott Pruitt doing at the EPA? What is Ben Carson, Dr. Ben Carson, doing at HUD? Uh, these, are, these are fundamental things that are happening right now. And the fact is, I happen to think the Trump administration is far more successful in its deconstruction of the regulatory state and a host of other initiatives than um, much of the media covers. So I don't think Trump is being stopped from doing too much of what, what he and his base want to do. Unsettlingly, I think they're having, beneath the radar, too much success. The book is Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, A Field Guide to the Most Dangerous People in America. The author is John Nichols. John, thanks so much for coming in today. It's an honor to be with you, my friend. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. One of the darkest days at the end of what we call the 60s came on September 9, 1971, after 1,300 prisoners at the Attica Correctional Facility in upstate New York rebelled to protest years of mistreatment. 
They took hostages, guards, and civilian employees, and for the next four days, the inmates negotiated with state officials for improved living conditions. On the fifth day, the state police attacked. They killed 39 people, 29 prisoners, and 10 hostages. More than 100 other people were severely injured. The true story of what happened at Attica was covered up by officials for decades. But now, 46 years later, we finally know the full story, thanks to the tireless and terrific work of Heather Ann Thompson. She teaches American history at the University of Michigan, and she's been writing about mass incarceration for the New York Times, The Atlantic, Salon, and other places. And her book is out now. It's called Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its Legacy. She's received lots of awards for the book, including the Pulitzer Prize in History and the Bancroft Prize, and she just won the Nation Institute's Ridenauer Book Prize. She joins us now from Ann Arbor. Heather Ann Thompson, welcome to the program, and congratulations on all the awards. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Well, let's start with the Attica Correctional Facility in 1971. One reviewer of your book called it a hellhole. Is that going too far? No, I don't think so. Um, I think that uh, it, it bears mentioning that I think prisons today are worse than they were in 1971. And as I hope my book describes, they were pretty brutal in 1971. Um, this is a severely overcrowded facility uh, in 1971, just jam-packed with, uh, you know, overwhelmingly uh, poor men, men of color, uh, men who had very few rights in the prison, including basic human rights. And that's what brings them together. And the rebellion, had it been planned as a rebellion? No. One of the interesting things after the whole thing is over is that the state would like to prove that this was a conspiracy, that somehow there had been a big plan from the left on the outside and the prisoners on the inside to take over this prison and to really uh, hold the state feet to the fire. It turns out that the story is more complicated. These guys, ironically, given their own uh, treatment in the system, had this kind of remarkable faith that if they went through the proper channels, they could get their conditions uh, improved. So before this ever happens, they are writing letters to state senators and to the commissioner of corrections, really hoping for some basic improvement. Um, They're also organizing in the prison. They're educating one another. They are in political organizations. But there is no plan to take over this facility. Why it all jumps off on September 1971 again, ironically, is down to management, prison management. They uh, yet again made a decision kind of unilaterally to punish one group of prisoners. In this case, they locked a group of prisoners and the guards escorting them in a hall, didn't tell anybody what for, what was happening, and everyone panics. And in that panic, a gate came open that allowed access to the nerve center of the prison. And then it was just complete chaos after that. Uh, That is until it became a more organized rebellion. There were an amazing few days uh, before the state troopers attacked uh, when the New York State Commissioner of Corrections let the prison rebels speak to the media and engage in negotiations with the state. That, That seems... That seems good to me. How did it happen? What were these negotiations like? 
Well, it's interesting because this is a moment of a real conflicted opinion about what to do in prison. So you have some very devoted prison liberal reformers, and that just so happens to have been uh, the case of the Commissioner of Corrections, Russell Oswald. He was a prison reformer. In his mind, uh, there was no question these prisons needed uh, fixing. They needed reform. And so when this eruption happens, when these guys uh, ask, to negotiate with the state, actually demand to negotiate with the state. He thinks negotiations um, are, are, are not maybe ideal, but certainly understandable. So he supports the idea of negotiations. Now, meanwhile, of course, the governor of New York, Nelson Rockefeller, the state troopers uh, amassing on the outside and the guards on the outside think it's a terrible idea. And so you have a lot of forces at work here. Um, the media being there was very important, though, because you know, the prisoners understood then um, that prisoners are locked away from everybody, right? The prisons are these closed institutions. So it was critical in their view to have the media there, frankly, to make sure that everyone negotiated in good faith and that they were not brutalized uh, should the prison be retaken. And what were the prisoners' demands in these negotiations? You know, remarkably uh, straightforward. There's a moment uh, after these guys negotiate, I'm sorry, elect leaders to represent them from each of the cell blocks. This is sort of the early hours, and they set up their negotiating team. There's all kinds of demands, um, some more radical than others. The one that gets a lot of attention is the demand that there will be transport to a non-imperialist country. Okay. Um, but all of those kind of more pie-in-the-sky demands get voted down, and what they're left with is uh, very practical, uh, basic human rights demands, you know, having to do with diet, having to do with, uh, you know, for example, asking that there be some Spanish-speaking guards, making sure that visitation was improved, asking to end slave labor in prisons, some very basic human rights goals. And, um, and they, in fact, do get negotiated quite successfully over the course of four long days and nights. And then came the assault. Tell us, tell us about that. You know, in short, what the what the nation is told is that this uh, assault on the fifth morning was the result of the prisoners on that fifth morning not surrendering when they were asked to do so. My book uh, makes clear that this assault was inevitable. Uh, the governor was determined to draw a line in the sand with these prisoners at Attica. He wanted to be tough on crime. It was pretty clear from the records that they knew they were going to kill hostages when they went in. They knew there would be a bloodbath. They did it anyway. And it's clear that they did it because this was a moment when the governor was really persuaded that he had to show he was tough on crime. And I think even all the way up to the White House, there was a feeling that there was a black revolution afoot that needed to be stopped. And prisons were the front line of that place where they were all going to you know, battle this out together. The details in your book of the the attack, the assault are... are are horrifying. Why do you think the white guards massacred so many people, shooting individuals many times? Why did they torture survivors afterwards? Can you explain any of that? Well, frankly, you know, this, this part of the book is the most difficult to read, I'm sure, and it was, it was absolutely the most difficult to write because at some level, there's no uh, vocabulary sufficient to really portray, convey the horror of what happened when those troopers and corrections officers retook Attica. It was a level of violence that one really can't understand without understanding um, the degree of racism in this country. 
every act of violence was punctuated with racial epithets and degradation and the, the, the dehumanization of prisoners that takes place that unfortunately, you know, I walk the reader through is, uh, is fundamentally about not seeing these people as human beings. And that's really the only way I think we can understand it. You mentioned uh, Richard Nixon, president at the time of Attica. Adam Gopnik, who reviewed your book in The New Yorker, wrote, No matter how badly you think of Richard Nixon, you have not thought badly enough. Close quote. <laughs> what, uh, what did Richard Nixon, what did you learn about Richard Nixon's views of the Attica uprising? Well, you know, to this point about understanding the brutality as so deeply informed by racism, the same really comes clear about uh, about Nixon. We knew it, but to hear him actually uh, question Rockefeller after this horrific massacre, and he essentially has one question, which is, was this a black business? And when Rockefeller assures him that it was, which of course was absurd, it wasn't, it was multiracial, but he says it was, and that's all Nixon needs to know. So you get to see the kind of naked naked racism of the president of the United States and all of the folks associated with him. And then you found in the White House tapes that Nixon says after the end, I think this is going to have a hell of a salutary effect on future prison riots. He likes it. Well, that's the whole point, right? So the whole thing that becomes clear um, digging back into Attica is that this was a moment when the state was determined to show any anyone on the ground challenging its authority that participatory democracy was not going to be tolerated, at least not in this form and fashion. And so it's, it's a shutting down of that. Um, by the way, of course, Attica is one of many of these incidents around the same period. This is in line with Kent State. It's in line with Wounded Knee. It is in line with... Uh, the Chicago 68 convention. This is a moment uh, when it really is war, uh, a war for who has the right to speak for the nation, I think. There are a couple of real heroes among the white officials. My favorites are the local medical examiners who had been told to stick to the official story and report that the inmates had killed the hostages. Tell us about the medical examiner. Well, he is one of the, the heroes, the coroner on the ground who uh, is actually uh, really brave. I mean, he can see that these guards, these hostages have been killed, not by the prisoners, as the state tells the world uh, via the media, but that they've been killed by gunshot wounds, by the troopers. And he goes public with that knowledge, an enormous cost to himself. He's hounded for the rest of his life. And there's others, you know, there's a whistleblower inside of the state's Attica investigation who makes clear the state could have indicted troopers and chose not to. There's a, there are a couple of heroes. I, I'd say that the most extraordinary heroes, though, are the prisoners and the surviving hostages themselves. We would not know uh, the full extent of what happened at Attica were it not for uh, their determination to insist that this story was told. Um, you know, decade after decade, no matter how unbelievable it seemed and no matter how much they were disbelieved. Well, it's clear there were major human rights abuses committed by the authorities at Attica, torture and killing. Uh, how has the state of New York dealt with those uh, abuses and, and the people who committed them? Well, I think that's why, it, it, to some extent, the book got 
a, a bit of attention um, that was controversial. Two-thirds of the book is about what happens after the uprising, and that's because none of the members of law enforcement who had actually committed the crimes at Attica had done the shooting. None of them stood trial, and uh, none of them were ever held accountable. And so uh, the majority of the book traces why that was the case. And in short, it was the case thanks to a very concerted effort on the part of the governor's office, the state police, and state uh, investigators to make sure that they were not held accountable and that indeed Attica would be uh, understood as all down to prisoner uh, misdeeds. And that had a chilling effect on the future of our criminal justice policy. After Attica, we got supermax prisons, permanent solitary, and the beginning of mass incarceration. Is it fair to say that Attica was a cause of all that? Well, I think it was certainly uh, it was certainly important to shifting the public's mood in such a punitive direction. I think that the war on crime had begun before uh, Attica. It had really started under Johnson, and we had already begun moving towards more punitive policy. But what Attica really did, in effect, it 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 helps to explain why the nation that had been in favor of prisoner rights, had been considering decarceration, and had been uh, favorable to ideas like better guard training, becomes so hostile to the idea that prisoners have rights, that they are in fact even people. And Attica is a critical moment where I think the nation sours on uh, prison reform and sours on the idea that people are redeemable in prison. The book is Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy. It won the Nation Institute's Ridenauer Book Prize and a bunch of other prizes, too. Heather Ann Thompson, we salute you for writing this book. We thank you for that, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me on. That's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, Sasha Abramsky. His new book is Jumping at Shadows, The Triumph of Fear and the End of the American Dream. He'll be speaking Thursday night, October 5th in Los Angeles at Book Soup on Sunset Boulevard. 7 p.m. Book Soup, of course, 8818 Sunset Boulevard in West Hollywood. Thanks also to John Nichols for his report on Trump's generals. They're featured in his new book, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. Trump Watch is produced at KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Thanks to the engineer for today's show, Lyra Smith, and to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Our theme music is Ry Cooter's Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you've missed any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at trumpwatchpcast and on Facebook at trumpwatchpodcast. The Trump Watch podcast is posted every Thursday afternoon, L.A. time. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.